Jeremiah chapter 32, 1 to 15. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalem, your uncle is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as the nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Barak, son of Neriah, the son of Marcia, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and all of the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence I gave Barak these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed, copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. I'm going to fast forward to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great to see you all this afternoon. Oh, pretty loud. Thanks, Gav. Um, Really good to be continuing our series in Jeremiah on uh, hope. And these are days in which our world desperately needs hope, aren't they? Um, the American novelist uh, Flannery O'Connor once said that there is something in us as storytellers and listeners to stories that um, demand the redemptive act, that demand that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. Um, and she's right, isn't she? 
In every uh, story that we tell, in every story that we hear, actually, we long for that redemptive moment, that opportunity for everything to be made right again. And so next time um, you watch a movie or you're watching um, a sporting game or you're watching the news, um, I challenge you to pay attention to how the story of redemption is being told. Because we love a good redemption story. And we love them, I think, because they reassure us, actually, that if the right price is paid, that actually we can be redeemed, that our lives can be brought back and proven worthy in spite of our mistakes. Um, and this is actually just what redemption is. It's the right and the opportunity to buy back that which is rightfully ours. Imagine a person who has to pawn off a precious family heirloom um, to pay for their mortgage or their, f their food or their bills um, because of a prolonged season of financial hardship. Right. And imagine that this person works and, and battles through life and saves enough money until that day comes that they can finally redeem what is rightfully theirs. That invaluable heirloom once again belongs to the family that has held it for generations. And this is the story of redemption that today's reading in Jeremiah 32 draws us into. Actually, Jeremiah 32 is uh, a snapshot of the cosmic story of God redeeming his people and his world. And this is what redemption is in the Bible. It is God buying back that which is rightfully his. Redemption is God buying back that which is rightfully his. Um, and so as you follow along this afternoon, I'd really encourage you to open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to Jeremiah 32. Um, we're going to work uh, through this chapter. And as we do that this afternoon, uh, we'll see three things. Uh, one, we'll see our need for redemption. Uh, two, our need for a redeemer. And three, what the redeemed life looks like. Our need for redemption, our need for a redeemer, and a glimpse of what redeemed life looks like. So let's begin with our need for redemption. Our verses 1 and 2 in chapter 32 bring us to a moment where the city of Jerusalem is surrounded and under siege. Uh, it's on the cusp of being burnt to the ground. And we read that Jeremiah, um, God's prophet, has been imprisoned by King Zedekiah for prophesying against him and the city, saying that the city will be taken and that Zedekiah will be taken into exile and we'll meet with Nebuchadnezzar face to face. Um, and this afternoon, I want us to feel the weight of this moment in the history of God's people. This is God's city we're talking about. It's the place where he dwelt, his temple. This is the place where he worshipped. This was the place where God's king ruled. Jerusalem's temple was the place where Israel's prophets would atone for the sins of God's people so that they could stay in right relationship with him. And it was all about to be burnt to the ground. And Jerusalem wasn't just their spiritual home. It was the economic, the social, the political heart of Israel as well. Um, the entirety of their cultural identity as God's people were all tied up in the fortunes of this city. And the enemy was at the gates. I think it's a bit hard for us actually to grasp just how connected uh, the identity of God's people actually was 
um, connected to the city. Uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, the effect of the situation might be as if um, Parliament House, the MCG, the NGV, the Palais Theatre, um, and St Paul's Cathedral were all just burnt to the ground in one day. Ooh, multiply that by a hundredfold, and you start to get a sense of what it would have been like for God's people. And Israel and Judah had reached out to all of their allies. They had exhausted every means for deliverance. Ironically, they even reached out to Egypt, and we read about this a few weeks ago. They reached out to Egypt for deliverance, the empire that had enslaved them generations ago. Um, every avenue and hope had been exhausted. They were surrounded without a dream of redemption. That's the moment that we're in right now, Jeremiah 32. How did they get there? I mean, wasn't God meant to be on their side? Weren't they meant to be God's people? Um, later on in this chapter, it makes it pretty clear why Israel finds itself in this situation. Um, Jeremiah's prayer in this chapter, he, in his prayer, he points to God's nature as both loving and faithful, as well as sovereign and just. And we hear this as he recalls the way in which God delivered his people from Egypt and bringing them into the land flowing with milk and honey. You can see this in verses 20 to 23. Um, actually, let's read verse 23 together. Set your eyes on that. Um, it says this, that Israel, they um, came into the land, the promised land, and took possession of it. But they did not obey him, God, or follow his law. They didn't do what God had commanded them to do. And so, God brought this disaster on them. And we hear from God's own lips in verse 26 of how Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in his sight from the very day they became his special people. Corruption and ungodliness had permeated every level of society. You see it in verse 32. From their kings and officials to their priests and their prophets all the way down to the everyday person in the city. They were all steeped in sin, sinning against one another. And what's worse, they burnt incense and poured out drink offerings to false gods in verse 29. They crafted idols with their own hands in verse 30. And they even had the audacity to take these and put them into God's temple. They built high places to other gods and even sacrificed their children, in verse 35, to the false god, Molech. They sinned against God and did what was detestable in his sight. And in verse 33, we read of God's patience. It says this, that again and again, he taught his people through the law given to them through Moses, through prophets like Jeremiah, who repeatedly called God's people to repent, to turn back from their idolatry and turn towards faithfulness to God. But we read this and we can sense the heartbreak of God as he says this. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. There was an 800-year period between uh, 
them being delivered from Egypt and then going into exile in Babylon. 800 years. God had been patient with his people, calling them to return to faithfully living as his people, to be united with one heart, worshipping him and him alone. But they never did, never with their whole hearts. See, needing to be redeemed presumes that something has been lost. Something needs to be bought back from the brink of destruction. And Israel, they were content to possess the promised land with all of its blessings without the God who gives them. They wanted the king without, I mean, they wanted the kingdom without the king. And this is why they find themselves surrounded by the Babylonians in chapter 32. And now, with the enemy at the gates, they see a great danger. But what they had failed to see was that the true danger had always lay within. They were already in desperate need for redemption long before Babylon ever showed up. And this is what uh, we regularly teach here in OS, isn't it? We teach about the heart and we teach about idols. Um, and because idolatry was Israel's greatest threat, and it's also ours today. You know, an idol is simply anything that we elevate into the place of God. And we see um, Jeremiah 32 in here that there are, there's both the sense of idolatry of the self and an idolatry of created things. Um, jump with me to verse 3. Um, King Zedekiah imprisons Jeremiah because he dares to speak the truth of God and his will over and against the king. And even though Jerusalem is surrounded and without hope, Zedekiah is still willing to imprison the one man who is willing to speak the uncomfortable truth. See, idolizing the self means that we silence the truth. We oppress those who speak the truth, even if that is God, preferring instead to listen to the voices and the truths that soothe us, that suit us, and that feed our self-worship. And we see a sense of um, a corporate self-idolatry too in verse 23. After Egypt, Israel comes in and takes possession of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. They enjoyed the fulfillment of all the good promises and gifts of God without giving their allegiance and affection to the God who brought them there and gave it to them. They took what benefited them without an ounce of gratitude toward God. And this is what self-idolatry does. Everything and everyone must pander to my comfort and to my pleasure because I deserve to be happy. And we wonder why we're the loneliest people in history. And we also see an idolatry of created things here too. Um, look at verse 30, right? Um, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. Verse 34 and 35, they set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. See, idolatry of created things is simply elevating what we have done and made or what we can do and making those things the ultimate good 
to be pursued and worshipped. Actually, idolatry is just another way we try to redeem ourselves. If I can just become a person who is um, rich or influential or funny, then my life will be worth something. I'll be a somebody. Or if I can just have wealth or a good-looking family or a growing portfolio, then I'll finally be happy or content or secure. And we can point to these things as um, the hopes in our lives, the hopes that we hope will redeem us, the things that will give us status and meaning. But the, the results of idolizing created things or the self are much the same. We sin against one another. We sin against the God who created all things and us. An inevitable byproduct of this. At the gates, threatening to destroy everything that they've built. Our lives come to this moment every now and then, where the enemy is at the gates. Could be a redundancy, could be a pandemic, could be a relational conflict that gets out of hand. And in these moments, we're confronted with the reality that um, things are the way they are, in large part, because of what we have done, because we have idolized ourselves or created things. And the heartbreaking thing is this, is that it's not just we who suffer, but our children suffer too. They are given as sacrifices on the altars of success or progress, consumerism, family, even religion. See, idolatry was the greatest threat to the future of God's people. And it still is. And maybe the enemy at the gates for you looks like untamable anger, paralyzing anxiety or crippling fear. Maybe it looks like a frantic overcompensating or habits which hurt and oppress. are here, maybe the enemy is at the gate to warn us that something in our lives, something in our community, something in our society has taken the place of God. And like Israel, when it comes to our idolatry, we desperately need redemption. We can trust in our ability to perform, to do better, to redeem ourselves, but um, the fact that we are in this position in need of redemption suggests that we probably can't. And we can trust a power that's external to us to deliver us and to redeem us, but end up enslaved. Thing. See, this is where our need for a good and better redeemer comes. Someone who can redeem us from our idolatry within and the enemy that surrounds us. See, throughout Israel's history, God's prophets would occasionally perform what we call sign acts. 
And these acts served as tangible illustrations to the will and the word of God. And Jeremiah's act of redeeming his uncle's field, this is one of the sign acts that the prophets performed. Um, God comes to Jeremiah in verse 7 and tells him that his uncle will come and ask that he redeems his field in Anathoth, his hometown. Um, And now Anathoth was in a really interesting position. It was about three to four kilometers north of Jerusalem. And so um, imagine with me the historical scene, right? Jerusalem's walls are surrounded by the enemy. And so it's highly likely that they're probably encamped somewhere nearby. Um, And actually historians tell us that Anathoth was leveled to the ground. And the Babylonians left less than 100 survivors. And so sure enough, just as God had said, Jeremiah's uncle comes along and says exactly what God said he would. He asks Jeremiah to redeem the land. Now this land had been in Jeremiah's family for generations and it was a common Jewish practice that if you came into difficulty or poverty and you had to liquidate your assets, um, say in the case of a foreign invasion or something like that, right? Um, that you would find your next of kin and that would remain in your family. Um, and the ESV in verse 7 translates... Uh, these words really well when the uncle comes and he says um, buy my field in Anathoth for the right of redemption by purchase is yours the right of redemption by purchase is yours and so Jeremiah being the faithful prophet of God sees the signs before him and he knows that this is the will of God and so he does as God instructs him he pays the price to redeem the land He gets the deed witnessed, and then he tells Baruch to um, put it in a clay pot so that it will last a long time. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. Put it in a clay pot, he says, so that it will last a long time. And then Jeremiah says in verse 15 that this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. We should feel a tension here. Can you feel it? Can you sense it in Jeremiah's words? The city is about to be burnt to the ground. He probably has the knowledge that his hometown has also been leveled. And here God is telling him to buy real estate. (laughs) What's going on here? So it'd be one thing for you to get some sort of prior um, insider knowledge telling you to buy large plots of land in Melbourne's inner west in the 1970s. With the property market the way it is at the moment, I'm sure that we all wish that our families had that kind of foresight. It'd be a completely different thing if um, someone told you in the late 80s to buy a plot of farmland near Chernobyl. (laughs) Knowing that it's probably not going to be habitable for at least a thousand years. You see, Jeremiah's unlikely redemption of this field points us to God's plan to redeem his people and his world. See, like Anathoth, God's people were in a hopeless situation. They'd been utterly destroyed by sin. Like Jerusalem, God's people were surrounded by the destructive consequences of their idolatry. And just as Jeremiah 
had the right to redeem the land by purchase, so too God has the right to redeem for himself his people and his world. Jeremiah says this in verse 17. He says, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And God says it of himself in verse 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. And this is who God is. He is the creator who made all things. He is the God who made each and every person, each and every one of us, to bear his image for his glory. And so all people and all things rightfully belong to him. We are his to redeem. The right of redemption through purchase is his. You know, Flannery O'Connor um, goes on to say in that quote um, that the reader of today looks for this redemptive motion, and rightfully so. But they've forgotten the cost of it. We look for redemption, but we forget is a price to pay. Let me ask you this. What price would you be willing to pay to redeem a fractured relationship with a family member or a long-time friend, someone who means knowing that they've caused you unknowable grief and are likely to keep doing it? What price would you pay for that person? And the question Jeremiah 32 ought to raise for us is whether or not God would be willing to pay the price for our redemption. Is a righteous God willing to redeem a corrupted people? Is a just God wanting to redeem perpetrators of injustice? Is a faithful God longing to redeem unfaithful, adulterous people? Does the God of love redeem a people of violence? Yes, yes. He does want to redeem. And yes, he has already paid the price for redemption. Scandalous, outrageous claim of Christianity. 1 Peter 1.18 tells us that sinners are redeemed by God. And that he himself paid the price for our redemption by the blood of Jesus on the cross. At the cross, God buys back for himself a people separated from him by sin and evil. At the cross, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the God of infinite worth, gave himself as a ransom for our redemption. He paid the price of death for our sin so that we would once again belong to him. And for all who put their trust in God's work in Christ to redeem us from sin, God says this, they will be my people and I will be their God. Friends, in Jesus we find the redemption that we long for. In Jesus, we find the Redeemer that we so desperately need. In the closing verses of Jeremiah 32 <clears throat> give us a glimpse into the life of those who God has redeemed. 
get this beautiful picture, don't we, of a people who live wholeheartedly devoted to God. A people who know that all they have and all they are has been redeemed and rightfully belongs to God. A people who know because they've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus that the God of the universe is and always will be wholly devoted to them. Listen to what God says in verse 39. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will go well for them and for their children. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing them good and assuredly will plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. God is not distant. He is personally invested in the redemption of his people and his world with all of his heart and his soul. And in a sense, God's words came uh, to pass as his people were redeemed from Babylon after 70 years of exile and returned to the lands to rebuild the temple and the city. And yet there's a sense waiting. Realized. You know, Roman, in Romans 8, Paul talks about the way in which uh, those who hope and trust in Jesus are still waiting for the fullness of our redemption to come. We're still longing for the day when Jeremiah 32, 39 becomes our reality, when we will finally have a total singleness of heart and action, always revering and fearing and worshipping God as we should, with every one of our deepest longings satisfied in him. And since we trust that the price of redemption has been paid in Christ, grounded in an event that has already happened in history, the future Christian hope is far from passive. It changes us. God gives us the Holy Spirit as the assurance and the assurer that Christ's blood has redeemed and will redeem all things, including us. And so redemption in Christ means that we can come to God now, full of confidence, free from fear, because Jesus' blood assures us that not only has God paid the price for our redemption to buy us back, but also that he has chosen to, and that he desires to have us. I don't know if we live with this sense in our walk with God that he actually wants us. The blood of Jesus proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And trusting that total future redemption will come because of Jesus' blood, because the price has already been paid, means that we as God's people can have joy in suffering, peace in hardship, Hope in mourning. And Paul in Romans 8 also talks about the way in which creation um, will only be liberated and redeemed through the redeemed children of God. The final two verses of Jeremiah 32 describe a holistic redemption of not only God's people but God's world. 
We see this. There's a geographic, political, societal, economic redemption of all creation here. And family, you and I are not the redeemer. God is. That is really good news. He and his gospel will redeem all things, even as he does that work through us. Redemption is God buying back and possessing all that is rightfully his. This is our hope, church. And we know too from scripture that God's purposes to redeem are actually enacted through us. And so I want to um, encourage us as a family to take on a practice for this week. I want to encourage you to set aside some time, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and ask God to show you what a redeemed version of any particular aspect of your life might look like. Write it down. Pray over it. And live in hope. What does a redeemed version of family, of relationships, of community, of work, of recreation or justice look like in our context? I want to encourage you, think through it, pray through it specifically. And as you do that, engage all of your being and what God has given you. Engage your imagination, your wisdom, your experience, your resources. It can be as small as, as imagining what a redeemed version of your weekly team meeting could look like. And it could be as big as dreaming about what a redeemed version of investment banking might look like, something that I would know nothing about. But family, let me remind you of this. The reality of our sin and idolatry means that we were in desperate need of both redemption and a redeemer. We could never redeem ourselves before. This was given for us as the Redeemer. And so the Christian hope of redemption now and the future hope of redemption tomorrow has the power to change the way we live with God and one another today. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks that you are the Redeemer. Thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of your son Jesus, that you have made us your people and you our God. Teach us what it means to live as your people, to live as redeemed children. Teach us what it means to live as, um, as people through which you will bring about your redemptive purposes in the world. We pray that we might be a church that your redemption power flows through and that we might see a redeeming of our lives, of our families, of our community, of this city for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.